0: The future of work isn't about shareholder value, technology, metrics, or automation. It's about being human and putting people first through actionable love. Welcome to the Love in Action podcast, where we hold deep conversations with extraordinary people to help you grow as a leader and expand your business. (sighs) When it comes to optimizing performance, it's all about maximizing potential of your leaders. Ally Business Coaching can give you the practical edge you seek. Ally Business Coaching, building great leaders inside great companies. Visit them at allybusinesscoaching.com. Here's your host, Marcel Schwantes.
1: Welcome to episode 64 of the Love in Action podcast where we bring you the world's most brilliant thinkers and experts to talk about how to make your business and workplace be both good for people and for profits. So here we are still very much in a pandemic with cases on the rise here in the U.S., which means how we connect with one another, it's still very much driven by technology. I mean, here I am on a... Computer screen about to interview my distinguished guest who I will introduce to you in a minute. But the reality is opportunities to connect authentically in the workplace or care for one another at a basic human level are diminishing. That's what I'm seeing. And so I'm calling it for what it is. And, you know, even if we return to our workplaces inside four walls eventually, and I hope we do, My experience in the past has told me that few of us have someone at work that we can trust enough to share our vulnerabilities and talk about the things that worry us and the things that stress us out. You know, it's tough being a human these days. There's a lot of suffering going on, yet our struggles often remain hidden from work. I mean, we hide our emotions, right? We compartmentalize. There is that put on the mask, when you walk in at work, and then when you leave work you put on another mask and you can finally be yourself at home in front of your kids and your spouses. So what I'm seeing is that there's no place or time for sharing our feelings in the workplace, or is there? Is it appropriate? And if we don't connect to other human beings, what are the consequences on our health, on our well-being? That's why I brought my guest to the show today in her latest book released late last year called The Human Moment. Dr. Amy Bradley argues that we need more compassion in business. And in these challenging times, workplaces have a crucial role to play in fostering kindness and care and understanding for one another as human beings. So based on a decade of research and packed with examples and case studies, Amy argues that compassion is the hidden key to unlocking your business performance. So who is Dr. Amy Bradley? Well, she is a professor, a writer, and TEDx speaker specializing in, what else? Compassion at work. Her field of work also has a special focus on bereavement or critical illness and how it shapes who we are and how we lead. In 2020, Amy made it onto the prestigious Thinker's 50 radar list of global management thinkers. Her research has been published in Harvard Business Review, Forbes, The Guardian, among others. And her book, The Human Moment, has been long listed for CMI's Management Book of the Year 2020. Amy hails from Buckinghamshire in the UK, and I'll have you know, she's also a competitive triathlete. Amy, welcome to the Love in Action podcast.
0: Thanks for inviting me, Marcel. You're making me blush with that introduction.
1: Well, I want to start right off the bat with the triathlete part. I mean, how long have you been doing that?
0: I'm not sure it's very competitive at the moment. There aren't many races going on, but I fell in love with it. Gosh, going back seven or eight years now, uh, I was out on a bike ride, actually, uh, locally, and someone pulled up alongside me on, uh, on his bike and he said, ''I've seen you out riding around these country lanes. Have you ever thought about triathlon? We're opening up a club locally.'' And this guy is responsible for me meeting my husband. So he was, at, he was at our wedding 18 months ago, and without him, we wouldn't have met. So triathlon not only is a passion, but it led me to the love of my life. So,
1: That's fantastic. Yeah. I love that. I would almost call that a gratitude moment, which, is, which would have been my <laughs> next question. Which, what makes you smile when you get up in the morning these days, Amy?
0: Gosh, there's so many things. Belly laughing with my husband in bed first thing in the morning when he he says something that really makes me laugh. Spending time with my friends. We're able to meet and walk together now. Now restrictions have been lifted. Mm. But I think, gosh, the deepest sense of joy I'm getting at the moment is my morning walk with our dog, going out early with him. And it's just time for the two of us. And I like standing and watching the Swifts fly. I've been waiting for them to arrive as the sign of summer, and now they're here. I just love watching the way they dart around in the air, and it just absolutely fills me with joy. So that's, I think, at the moment, really my daily gratitude moment.
1: That's great. Now, forgive my American ignorance. You said something flies, and I did not recognize the creature you mentioned, swifts?
0: Yeah, they're, they're like small swallows. Ah. Yeah, and a sign of... Summer. They're all here. Okay. So it's, yeah, beautiful to watch.
1: That's great. I, can, I visualize now, you mentioned uh, before we hit record, where you live with lots of green fields and pastures. That's how I, I imagine it. So, Amy, let's get into the book. It's called The Human Moment. And, you know, there's always a story behind why people write their books. So what's your story? And how did you arrive at, at writing The Human Moment?
0: Well, thanks for asking me. I think without my own story, there's a piece of the jigsaw missing, and that's how the book came into being. It was a profound personal experience of my own that led me into it. But before I share my own story, I just wanted to quickly go further back, actually, into my childhood and say I was always interested in human moments from a young age without really knowing it. There's lots of stories that my parents share of me chatting to people in the street when I was young. And on one particular holiday in the Pyrenees Mountains in France, I attached myself to another family as we walked. And by the time we reached the summit of this mountain, the family said they knew all our secrets because I shared everything with them. And I always knew I wanted to become an academic and study for a doctorate initially, but there was never anything I was passionate enough about to spend three, four, five years of my life on. And then 13 years ago, when I was six months pregnant with my daughter, my partner at the time was killed suddenly. And I was thrown into simultaneous motherhood and grief and I would describe myself as sleepwalking for two years, living, surviving day to day and completely discombobulated with a sense of joy for becoming a mother for the first time, but deep and profound grief. And it was gestures of compassion that were shown to me at that time by my employer that made me realize the power of compassion at work. So it led me into my own doctorate and then the work I've done since with individuals and organizations in this area.
1: Yeah. And I want to ask you to just tell us, our listeners, a little bit more about this area of work. And I always frame it. And, you know, I asked you about what makes you smile in the morning as a gratitude moment. Now I'm going to ask you what makes you get up in the morning. So what is your why? What is your purpose in the work that you do?
0: So it was through my own story that I found my purpose. And I suppose if I was going to say it in short, it's to bring more love to the world. It's to bring love to ourselves initially. And if I can frame that particularly in the context of leadership, many leaders asking me, how can I resource myself better, provide my own self-care so that I can be there for those around me? So that's the first why, helping particularly leaders and managers to resource themselves so that they can be there for others. Secondly, I was being asked, how can I better look after team members who are going through something difficult? You know, as humans, we all suffer. We all go through experiences in our lives that are profoundly difficult. But there's a surprising lack of knowledge and confidence, I would say, among professionals in organisations about what do you say or not say when someone's going through something difficult? When do you involve HR? How can you support them appropriately? So that's the second why. So helping teams, particularly line managers, to better support and create team compassion. And the third why is, you know, we have moments where there are spontaneous acts of kindness between us, how can we create environments where compassion is both systemic and systematic? So that's my third why, to help organizations to become compassionate for the long term.
1: Mm. I want to start with kind of the flip side of compassion and why our workplaces have become so dehumanized. What do you attribute that to?
0: Gosh, I think we had an unhealthy relationship with our work long before this crisis. I think in the West particularly, we have and have got used to long hours cultures where being first in and last out of the office carries a badge of honour in certain industries. I think we prioritise task over relationship. I think we reward the outcome of task over-relationship, and that drives a kind of self-focused individualism rather than an other-focused collectivism that lies at the heart of compassionate cultures. I think we privilege the outcome of success and material wealth. I think we were starting to normalise stress-related absence and career burnout, so we were failing to look after ourselves, let alone our colleagues down the corridor. And I honestly think this current crisis and COVID has been an opportunity for us to step back and reset the way we view ourselves and our relationship with our work. And it's potentially a watershed moment. If we get it right, we'll look back and we'll have reset ourselves and our organizations to be more healthy.
1: Mm. So you touched on a few examples of how compassion is lacking in the workplace. And I wanna get into what compassion looks like when we organize and embed compassion into our work work cultures. But before we do that, I've had so many guests come on that have done the research on compassion in the workplace. And so I like definitions, right? So I wanna ask for your definition and see how it compares to others. What would you say is the definition of compassion?
0: I would say there's a yin and a yang to compassion. The yin being developing an awareness of how things are for ourselves and developing a kind attitude towards ourselves when things go wrong. So the yin for me is self-compassion and a turn towards ourselves. The yang is compassion out towards others. So how are we noticing and responding to suffering as it is around us with an attitude of kindness, care, generosity and
1: non-judgment? So... Is this something that you develop over your lifetime, or are you born with it?
0: Gosh, well, I, I think it depends on your view of human beings, but I would say 99% of us are hardwired for compassion. We like to care for others and be cared for. You know, we want to be loved and feel loved. I think uh, competent compassion is something different. The compassion required of leaders and managers is different. But as human beings, absolutely, we love to care and be cared for.
1: Yeah, that's what I found as well in my research, that it's in our creation design. What, you know, whatever your persuasion is of how we got here, that's just human nature. Whether you like it or not, I think we have the propensity to want to care for others. And sometimes it's just turning the switch on inside, us, inside ourselves. It's all there. Some of us have to wake that up. Even for those of us that think this is too squishy for me, when you begin to act out with more care and kindness in the world, especially in the workplace, this is the whole reason why we write books and do podcasts is you will see a noticeable difference in how people react and respond to you, whatever your role, You know, whether you're a coworker or a colleague, or especially if you're in a leadership position, impacting the lives of others. It's amazing to me how different people will relate to you when you open up the doors of care and compassion and extend it out to the world. And what comes back to you is a greater return on giving compassion. It comes back to you two, threefold, doesn't it?
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. I describe it in the book, unfortunately, as people having turned their emotional thermometers down so they can't feel anymore. And that's to cope with, in many ways, the brutality of work life. But actually, reframing the way we view ourselves and others through a lens of compassion absolutely enables that reciprocity tenfold.
1: Yeah, yeah. So let me ask this question first before we get into how to organize and embed it into your organization. Can you give us some examples of what... "Quote spontaneous acts of compassion." I think that's your direct. I put that in quotations. I think from your book. So, what does that look like in practice? Which a lot of times it goes unnoticed.
0: It does. Uh, spontaneous acts of compassion go unnoticed because often they're between colleagues who know each other well. You know, that's for me the starting point for the spontaneous acts. That if we know those around us at an intimate level, we are attuned to what they need in the moment. And one such act was when I returned to work after having my daughter, I had to take her into work with me at the time because I was juggling obviously work and being a mom. And I remember being on a really important call and Anna was in the push chair next to me and she was starting to get grizzly. And one of my co-workers just walked in and without asking, she said, I'm just going to walk her out. She took her away and walked her around the car park to get her to sleep. Now, that was a spontaneous act of compassion. And often they go unnoticed because, you know, they're just kind of happening in the normal course of interactions between people who are closely related at work. And they're not spotlighted in most organizations because they're actually invisible in the day-to-day relationships.
1: Hmm. So that leads us to how to organize. If I'm a, a head of HR or even a, the leader of my, my company and I want to I build a culture of compassion, is, are there building blocks? Well, how do we do this? How do we embed it into our cultures?
0: So I talk about this in the book and I have to say I'm standing on the shoulders of giants here. So I know you had Monica Werlein as a guest recently, and I build on both her and Jane Dutton's work to talk about the building blocks in my book. And the first is culture. So companies, organizations, institutions can have the brightest visions and the best plans, but if the culture isn't conducive, compassion will never flourish. And we know, Marcel, don't we, that culture's kind of intangible, isn't it? But it's something that all employees would feel and experience. It's a kind of felt sense of what kind of place this is to work. And I would say that culture is most powerfully demonstrated by the stories that are told, both within and the organization, about the way people are treated around here. So culture is an absolute building block. And compassionate cultures are those where the stories are about love, connection, and care between people. And the spontaneous acts of compassion I mentioned earlier are those that would be visible rather than invisible. The second pillar is leadership. And we know that compassion can't be mandated from the top down. It That kind of you know, makes it antithetical to compassion in a sense if you start to try and mandate it from the top down. But leaders are an inescapable focal point and they do cast a long shadow. If you have people in formal leadership positions who role model compassion by showing genuine care and courage to be vulnerable, they build trust the quickest. You know, people who are willing to say, you know what, I'm having a really difficult day. Things are difficult at home. I don't have all the answers. I'm really tired. It doesn't have to be some profound tragedy that they disclose. It's just if they're willing to be vulnerable about being human, that's a great starting point. And then the third building block of four is systems and practices. So they tend to enshrine culture. And companies, institutions organizations that are founded on principles of trust, respect and care, have ways of being transparent in their communication, encourage participative decision-making and have favorable HR policies are likely to be on a good road towards embedding compassion. And then finally, I would say it's the networks between people. This is also one of the building blocks that Monica and Jane talk about, the strength of ties between people is the knitting, I would say, that threads compassion together and enables it to be embedded. I give an example in the book of Cisco mm. and Cisco's conscious culture. So Cisco have 74,000 employees worldwide, and you might expect the networks between people to be weaker because it's such a big organization. There's one story of a media interview in 2018 where a Cisco employee talks about a leader in another part of the business who he'd never met, having heard about his daughter's life-limiting illness and how she'd rallied around in, in her own team to raise money to support medical costs and Cisco had matched this fundraising effort. Now, these two people had never met, yet because of the strength of ties between them, Compassion wasn't a- able to be mobilized.
1: Hmm. Wow. Amy, there's a research that you've done and on what's called post-traumatic growth, which is a positive psychology term nowadays. So I want you to share a little bit about what you found. You found that people actually experience four types of personal growth after they've gone through something horrific, you know, a challenging time. And I'd like to ask you to walk us through what you found, what, what growth they experienced, and especially how it relates to compassion. And we'll get into that after this short message. Today's proud sponsor, Ally Business Coaching, is a brand that I stand behind. This leadership development firm is helping catapult companies into a brighter future with their five-star program. Through an individual customized course with live coaching presented in virtual meeting rooms, Ally is producing spectacular results for their clients. Their ABC course sets the stage for your people to increase self-awareness, learn leadership techniques that fit their personalities, understand others better, improve communication, and build trust. Coaching has been proven to be the most effective way to improve people's abilities, and now it's easier and more cost-effective than ever before to participate in high-level, high-value coaching. Learn more about their five-star program at www.allybusinesscoaching.com. Ally Business Coaching, Coaching, building great leaders inside great companies. Okay, we're back. So Amy, talk to us about post-traumatic growth. What did you find in your research?
0: So leading into this research was the idea that we all go through difficult experiences in our lives be it critical illness bereavement family breakdown redundancy financial difficulties these experiences can be turning points and transformations in our lives if we're able to have the time and space to reflect on them and what my research did was come alongside leaders who'd been through difficult experiences and asked them to tell the stories of those experiences unprompted by me in terms of their learning. And what was fascinating was without any prompting, all the leaders I spoke to found something positive in their struggles. And as you said earlier, there were four domains of growth that leaders talked about. The first was what's called appreciation of life So after going through something difficult, leaders saying to me, do you know what? Work doesn't seem so important anymore. You know, one leader saying, I realized that I'd missed dinner with my kids every night for the past 10 years. And actually, that's what's important. You know, so this reappraisal of the relative importance of work compared to other aspects of people's lives and just having this newfound perspective on appreciating small things like the sunrise that just weren't there before. The second area of growth that people talked about was something called new possibilities. So people saying, as a result of what I've been through, I'd like to pursue my dream. You know, that kind of releasing effect of, you know, once you've been to hell and back, these leaders talk about being released in a way that, you know, it's not about the bank balance anymore. So. One individual I spoke to who worked in financial services decided to give all of that up and all of the material trappings that went with that and retrain as a paramedic. Somebody else who was actually a colleague of a leader who went through a difficult experience, there was a vicarious impact for her, this kind of second-hand growth, having just witnessed what her boss had been through. And she retrained from logistics to become a midwife. So these new possibilities opening up for people to do something that was a dream before and they felt they couldn't do. The third is personal strength. So people realizing actually they're quite resilient. And this newfound strength of being able to go through things that they didn't know was there before. And particularly in organizations, leaders saying, do you know what? I just don't sweat the little stuff anymore. I'm not interested in politicking or sitting on the right tables at lunch. You know, I've got this sense of my own strengths and what's important and my own anchor and values that just wasn't clear to me before I went through this experience. And the last domain of growth is what I called managerial growth. So direct development for managers, and this is the link to compassion, direct development of compassionate leadership and what it means to be a compassionate leader because they'd themselves been through something difficult. And I don't want to talk and take up too much time on this, but these were things like these people being more willing to be open and vulnerable than they were before, so more self-disclosure and more willing to let go, to delegate and to be freer, to let others grow beneath them because they had this newfound perspective. But going right back to what I said at the start, people need time, space, and support to see their growth from these experiences. If that's not there, then often the transformational impact of these experiences goes unrealized.
1: Mm, That is intriguing to me. There's also some lessons that leaders should be aware of when fostering compassion at work, We don't have time for all eight, but is there one that really floats to the top that's absolutely critical for leaders to not ignore?
0: Yeah, it's lesson one in the book. And I think it's there, you know, at the time I was writing it, I was writing it in order of priority. And lesson one is start at the top. You know, it has to be leaders who wake up to this. Mm. Leaders set the emotional tone in the organization And it's those leaders who take time to get to know people and to prioritise employee well-being over business outcomes, I would argue, that set the tone and context for compassion. It's the leaders that are willing to be vulnerable, to talk about their feelings, who set this context. And and it absolutely has to start at the top.
1: Mm. That's good, Amy. And I wholeheartedly agree. And I keep banging on that drum. It's the the leaders at the top of the hierarchy. And I don't even like to use the word hierarchy anymore, but it starts with them. They have to champion the cause. You know, I'm also intrigued by some of the research you cited, which really got me thinking. Okay, but the research finds that 22 percent of Americans and 23 percent of Brits experience loneliness and isolation. And one out of six people actually feel they don't have anyone to talk to at work about the things that worry them. So here's the interesting part, Amy. Uh, Gallup says that only 24% of managers had received any mental health training the previous year, which I believe was 2016. I'm wondering if that stat has gone up since the coronavirus. I would wager not. But anyway, here's what I'm getting at. This almost suggests that on top of everything managers have to worry about in their day-to-day responsibilities, now they're being asked to be sort of counselors and social workers. And so are you proposing that the role of the manager needs to change so that being in tune with people's mental and emotional state now becomes an expectation of the role? It's a
0: great question. I'm not suggesting managers try and become counsellors or social workers, but I am absolutely suggesting that line managers are absolutely key when it comes to setting the emotional tone in their teams. We hear this a lot, but it's so true. People leave managers, they don't leave jobs, and they leave managers if they feel that they're not being listened to, if they're not cared for, supported or or valued so line managers do make or break compassion absolutely and you know I, I think it's those managers who are accessible available genuinely interested in care for their people who make a good start in this domain I do think I mentioned earlier I think spontaneous acts of compassion do happen every day but competent compassion is a is a skill that managers need to invest in, in terms of their own development, you know, organisations would do well in thinking about competent compassion as, you know, particularly in the current environment as an absolute key skill moving forward. You know, and that's about uh, noticing both how things are for us as individuals and noticing what's going on in our team and among our team members, that antennae of sensitivity to somebody who might be going through something difficult. It's about making listening fashionable again. I think we've prioritized talking for too long. You know, managers and leaders just talk too much. I'm talking a lot now. (laughs) But what I'm saying is deep listening needs to become fashionable again, being accessible and available just so that people can talk if they need to. And finally, responding in a way that's appropriate And I I do talk a lot in the book of misguided acts of compassion when colleagues are misunderstood and the acts of compassion are seen as as misguided in some way. So, Mm. you know, it's so important also to respond in a way that's appropriate and meaningful for the individual concerned.
1: Yeah, yeah. We have pivoted in so many ways, right, with the current pandemic, and so I would advise leaders listening that we also need to pivot even how we express our compassion. That Sometimes we even may think that compassion is a one-way street or a narrow path where we have to widen the gap a little bit to consider, am I listening enough compassionately? And I think to me, compassionate listening is being able to not just hear, but listen with the intent to act to meet someone's need. To remove someone's suffering. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Amy, you talk about how we need to make time for what you call a human moment, which is really, I mean, the title of your book, what would you say is a human moment?
0: See, this is where I think every human being on this earth can do something to affect positive change because human moments are simply making the time each day to connect with someone at a basic human level. It's, Just asking somebody how they are, not because you're being polite or because you're on autopilot. Asking somebody because you're genuinely interested in them and interested in what they have to say and are also open and attentive to what might come back. I share an experience in the book of a human moment when I was walking the dog. You know, these human moments can happen anywhere. I was walking the dog when my husband and daughter were out on a run and I came across a guy, elderly guy who was dressed to run but struggling to walk and I just asked him how he is and he told me he used to be a marathon runner and how he'd run over a hundred marathons in his lifetime but now he struggles just to put one foot in front of the other but he likes to get up on a Saturday morning and dress to run, just to remember those days of being a marathon runner once again. And, you know, I could have walked past this guy because my usual default is being in a hurry because I've got 101 things to do that day. But on this particular day, I just slowed down and walked with him. And I was really moved by his story and his disclosure. And that, for me, was a human moment. Mm.
1: What would be a a human moment in the workplace from a leadership perspective? How would we create a human moment in the workplace?
0: So, you know, these are the conversations that happen. Well, we're in a different world now working from home. They would have been the conversations that would happen at the coffee machine or, you know, in the car park on the walk into work. Now, human moments I still see happening through technology because we're relating to people in their own homes, there's actually an intimacy to our relationships that wasn't there before. And a human moment the other day was in a session that I was part of with leaders, and in the session itself, one of the leader's kids brought him a fish finger sandwich, and we saw this hand come across the screen, and the fish finger sandwich was dumped in front of the computer, and the kid not realizing that he was on a call. And he just said, shared a story about how the family loved fish finger sandwiches. So that's completely spontaneous, but it just grounded the whole call into, you know, everyday life. And, you know, just allowing ourselves to be human, especially now we're in our own homes, can open up that intimacy, you know, seeing people's dogs and kids, and they're in their bedrooms and kitchens. And it's opened up this opportunity for humanity to come into our homes from work in a way that wasn't there before.
1: Yeah, even I'm going to allow in real time a human moment because my phone just rang as we were talking and the rule of uh, podcast recording is that you would, you know, clean that up in post-production. So I'm just going to let that go and say that was a human moment. I, you know, somebody just called me and I (laughs) have my phone shut off. That's on me. So I'm allowing myself uh, the space to just forgive myself there for that call.
0: (laughs) That's
1: great. Amen, we have a tradition where we talk about fear and love and, you know, fear as I think the counter to behaviors of love and care, which is the whole reason why I do this podcast. So the question is always this, why do you think people still lead through fear and intimidation when we have overwhelming evidence that practical love and care and compassion lead to business outcomes?
0: Such a great question. I think the system that we work within Brings that out in us. And what I mean by that is we seem to privilege drive, we privilege pushing for success. We privilege, you know, even in schools, it's about being the best. And that kind of drive, that individualistic, sharp-elbowed, be the best, and you know, it's all about success, reward, drives the kind of both the threat part of our brain and the reward part of our brain that leads us to be in a constant state of anxiety. And I think that's where the leading through fear comes from. You know, I think, you know, that kind of drive perhaps helps produce results in the short term. You know, people step up because they're worried about their jobs, but in the long term, it's just not sustainable. And it's perpetuated by a system that, is asking for short-term results, quarterly results, yearly results. So that kind of nurturing, caring part of the brain just isn't plugged in, in the way that the system's set up in organizations, the capitalist system itself. So that's what I would say.
1: So I would like to bring us to a close, unfortunately. And we always end with two final questions, Amy. And that is personally, what's really tugging at your heart right now that you would like our listeners to know?
0: Yeah. I love these questions, Marcel. Um, (laughs) What's tugging at me right now? I think, so this crisis, I said this earlier, it's a watershed moment, I think. It presents opportunities for us to reinvent ourselves, our communities, and our economies. And it's an opportunity to reinvent them for a more sustainable future for each other, and our planet, and I feel really moved by this cause at the moment. You know, I don't want us to boomerang back to where we were. You know, I was reading last year about the Okadjul glacier in Iceland and the community there who gathered around to commemorate the fact that this glacier has gone, and they've marked the passing of this glacier with a bronze plaque that says something like, in short, This is the first of the glaciers to go. And we know the rest are going to follow this road. We could have done something about it. Only you in the future will know if we did. And that's really tugging at my heartstrings right now because I really think this is an opportunity not to boomerang and to reinvent, to create a future that's more sustainable. And I just hope we do it.
1: Mm, Beautifully put. Amy, you get to end this conversation your way with one final thought or a key takeaway that we can bring with us that's going to make a difference in our lives?
0: I'd say make time for a human moment every day. We might not be company founders who can create a compassionate culture from scratch or even leaders with the formal authority, but we can all take a responsibility wherever we are in the world and whoever we are, just to make time to connect and care for somebody the basic human level you know these enable us to open up to people and enable others to open up to us and you know if we all just do that we can create ripples of change i think
1: well stated she is dr amy bradley and the book is called the human moment the positive power of compassion in the workplace amy if people want to get in touch with you and learn more about you and your work where can they go
0: uh, so, you can find me on LinkedIn, Dr. Amy Bradley. I'm also a professor at Ashridge Holt. So, you can find me there too.
1: Great to talk to you, Amy. I appreciate your time. We have to do it again sometime soon.
0: Thanks, Marcel. It's been an absolute pleasure. Maybe we'll meet in person one day.
1: Absolutely. If I'm ever in the UK, I know uh, I'm going to look you up. I want to be able to run free in those grassy green hills that I imagine you living by. So,
0: (laughs) Stop by for a cup of tea.
1: There you go. (laughs) I want to thank our sponsor today, Ally Business Coaching, for making this episode possible. When it comes to optimizing performance, it's all about maximizing potential of your leaders. Ally Business Coaching can give you the practical edge you seek. Ally Business Coaching, building great leaders inside great companies. I stand by this company as a business coach myself, and I stand by their service. So please check them out. You can visit them at www.ally, that's A-L-L-Y, allybusinesscoaching.com. Hey, Love & Action Nation. If you're enjoying the format of the show and the topics we talk about and you want to bring this conversation to your company event or conference, I would love to explore the possibilities, whether it's speaking or moderating a live discussion or a Q&A panel or even producing a series of podcasts before and after your event. Let's talk. You can reach me by email personally at Marcel. At loveinaction.club. That's Marcel, M A R C E L, at loveinaction.club.